Would you speak through me? And would you change our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. You guys know that I that I grew up in the Philippines, and oh, if hey, Matt's got Bibles here. Matt, if if you need a Bible, Mr. Matt will give you one. Raise your hand, and he'll throw one to you, or he'll pass one to you. Don't throw it. Uh, you guys, some, some of you guys know that I grew up in the Philippines, and I go back to visit my, the tribal group that I grew grew up in often. And yeah, that's right. Emmy's been with me. And there was a time I don't know, probably 15 years or so ago, that I went back to visit my community of people there and every time I go I'm trying to buy medicine and I'm trying to get food and I'm trying to help just in any way that I can and this one time I bought antibiotics for one of the girls who was just having a just she could hardly breathe and we were able to get her some antibiotics and I gave the antibiotics to the mom and explained the dosage and then after several days just before I left I asked I would check on the mom and the girl who was who had this who could hardly breathe and I asked, you know, how's it going? And she's, well, well, I've been given the medicine, but we ran out. And I'm like, what do you mean you ran out? I give you the full dose. And she said, well, I actually got, um, I got three kids who are in the same situation, so I split it between all three of them. So all you who are in nursing, what would you say about that? What would you say about taking? Tell what? Yeah, she was thinking about something else. Okay. You guys, what happens when you take, when, you, when there's a dose, you read on the instructions to, to take the full dose if you only take half the dose? It doesn't work. At least it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. In fact, if it's antibiotics, it inoculates you against taking antibiotics in the future. It's worse than not taking it. Yeah. Guys, I, here's what I want you guys to understand the Bible doesn't work unless you take the full dose. You can follow Jesus with 98% of your life and it not work. And then you come to my office and tell me how bad life is and how discouraged you are. I had somebody in my office this week telling me about how bad life was and how discouraged they were. And I said, so what did you, what did you read in the Bible this morning? And this person said, I don't read the Bible this morning. And, and I'm, I know we've, we've had lots of these conversations over a lot of years. So I said, why not? And this person said, I just, I'm just too busy in the morning. I said, did you eat your breakfast? And this person said, yeah, I have to eat my breakfast. Started to get a little bit, little bit like, felt like a little bit offensive. And I said, you had time to eat your physical food, but you didn't have time to eat your spiritual food. And this person said, Stop judging me. Now, here's the deal, guys. I don't want to judge anybody. Nobody has to come and talk to me in my office. Nobody has to listen to me on Thursday night. But what I, what I don't want to happen is that people pretend that they're following Jesus with their whole lives when they're only following their Jesus with a certain part of their lives, the part that is comfortable. Because it doesn't work. The healing power of Jesus happens in that last 2% or 1% or half percent. You can follow Jesus with 98% in your life and it not work because what is required to follow Jesus is absolute surrender. Otherwise, it don't work. And this is why people, people do come in there. They, they, they're like, I tried Jesus. But it didn't work for me. But they never surrendered 100%. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? And I'm, I'm saying there is life available from the Spirit of God through the Word of God, but we have to want it. 
And I think what happens is that sometimes it's really not that interesting. In fact, the person that was in my office yes, this week telling me about this said, I, I know I'm supposed to be interested in, in the Bible, but I'm just not. Now, this is what I think it is. How many of you guys make puzzles? What's the biggest puzzle you've ever made? 3,000. Anybody beat 3,000? How many? He's not finished yet. That's right. 5,000. You, you, you made it? Oh, oh, oh. No, that's what I mean. You put, the, you put the puzzle pieces together. I know you didn't make the puzzle. 8,000. We got an 8,000. Okay. You made an, you, you put together an 8,000 piece puzzle? Okay. Here's the deal. I think most of you guys, if we got, actually you surprised me about a year ago. We had a puzzle making craze here at the cornerstone. I was like, how did that happen? That was something like flashbacks in the 1940s. Uh, if I, if it had been me, who said like, guess we're all going to get together and make puzzles. I think you guys would have laughed at me, but it happened here. It was like every day for about three months, I came in and people were making puzzles. Now, if you guys, if somebody could try to get you into puzzles and they start with an 8,000 piece puzzle and you worked on it for 30 minutes and gave up and the next day somebody invited you to make another puzzle, you'd be going, it's not very fun. So why don't you come to my house and we'll make 25 piece puzzles together. That's my level. I like to. I like making puzzles with the little kids because you can do it in five minutes and then you're done, right? But I think this is the way it is with the scripture. So many times, people don't really like the Bible because it is like a puzzle, and they expected it to be like a storybook, and they took a couple of pieces and they kind of tried to put them together, and it didn't really fit, and they kind of make. You know what it's like when kids force the pieces together. And there's like totally different, it's like they don't even go, they're not even from the same box. And people do this with scripture and they're like, you know, I don't really get it. It's not really that fun. But if you are a person who spent time with Max, was it, it was Max that you said 8,000 pieces? Or whoever here said 8,000 pieces? Okay. If you spent 8,000 pieces, 8,000, if you spent a bunch of time with Max making an 8,000 piece puzzle and you guys got it done and you Cheered when you got it. I mean, that last piece is so satisfying, if you guys notice. That's why, like, 25-piece puzzles. Because you get those last pieces a lot more often. Then you take it apart and you do it again. That feeling of, like, I finished this thing is worth figuring out. Now, you know what? The, the Bible is like a puzzle. It's got all these little pictures, all these little parts. And they fit together to make an amazing 8,000 Maybe 800,000 piece puzzle because there's so many little parts to it. And if you've taken the time with Max or with somebody else to put together the pieces of the biblical puzzle and you found where some of those pieces fit, it'll blow your mind and it'll get you excited. But that doesn't happen unless you try to put the puzzle together. Nobody gets an understanding of biblical truth unless they put their energy into it. Guys, if you seek, you find. If you don't seek, you don't find. It's worth putting time to it. Guys, no Bible, no breakfast. Can you guys say that one more time, please? No, no Bible, Bible, no breakfast. Some of you said it. Some of you like never heard that before. Guys, that's our standard here. If you don't have time to read the Bible anymore, you don't get time for breakfast. Because 
You need both of those. But one of them was more important. People, Jesus said, that people don't live by bread alone or by Wheaties alone. But every word that comes from the mouth of God, it's worth dying for. In fact, there's this, this verse in Psalm 119. Guys, if you, don't, if you don't love the word of God yet, no condemnation. You don't love things that you haven't spent time with. But I'm in, I want to encourage you, if you, if you don't, you know, some of you pretend to love the word of God. But if you don't, if you're just pretending, then admit that to yourself and admit it to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to love you more. I want to love your word more. Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is about loving the word of God. And I just want to read you a couple verses out of here. Psalm 119, verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. My, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. You guys want to know how to preserve your life? It's by living according to his precepts. And it's, that, that means his way of thinking. It works. And nothing works if you don't want him. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You can try to make life work. You can follow 98%. But if, you, if there's 2% of your, lives that lo- of your life that loves something more than him, your life doesn't work. So you confess that to him. Lord, I need you. I need you to teach me. Okay. What we're doing tonight is we're going back to Acts. You guys remember we're in Acts 3, right? Okay, Acts 3. There, there's some stuff that we read last week that I'm like, I, I think I can't just pass over this because this is just, uh, just like, if we just kind of peel back the layers and take a microscope and look into this, we're going to see some things that you guys have never seen before. So Acts 3, 17, if you guys remember what happened. Peter and John, P and J, were headed into the, the temple. Lame guys there, been lame from birth. He asked them for money. They're like, we don't got money, but we got. But what we do have, we're giving to you. Stand up and walk. They heal the guy. When they heal the guy, everybody comes running. The lame guy's hanging on to them. They're wanting to know, what happened? Why is there power here? And so Peter explained. That's what we talked about, how Peter explained the gospel to these people last week. But th- I want you guys to notice a couple verses. Acts 3, verse 18. Starting at verse 17. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. He's talking, he's talking to the people. He's just saying that you guys killed Jesus. Verse 18. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ, the Messiah, would suffer. And then down to verse 24. He says, indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. Okay. What's the point from verse 17, verse 24, verse 18, verse verse 24, that the death of Jesus had been foretold in the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament. Do you guys believe that? Okay. So you're, say you're sharing tomorrow. I hope you're sharing with somebody tomorrow about Jesus. You're sharing tomorrow with somebody about Jesus and you come across this verse. They're like, where in the Old Testament? What are you going to say? Okay, the question is, if, look at verse 20 to 18 again. If it was foretold through all the prophets that Jesus, that the Christ would suffer, what's Peter referring to? Or where is it in the Old Testament? Peter's referring to the Old Testament. All that, all that, that was written up until the point of Jesus. 
What was it that was written about the point of Jesus that Peter is referring to that refers to Jesus and Jesus' death? Okay, Genesis 3.15. That's where it starts. Genesis 3.15. Guys, let's, what we're going to do, we got 35 minutes. Get your pens. Get your, get your notebook. We're going to whiz through this, and I want to blow your minds. And, I, and I, I put on Facebook, in the Facebook group this afternoon, I said, invite your skeptical friends because I, want, I would love for people who don't know Jesus or wonder if the Bible can really be trusted to be here tonight. To check this out. Okay, so we're going to start in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15, guys, you got to have a Bible. Um, and um, Skylar's going to put it up here if you don't. But Genesis 3.15, this is God speaking to the devil in the form of a serpent. In the story of how the devil usurped the authority of humanity on this planet. And he te he's telling the devil what his punishment is going to be. This devil in the form of a serpent. He says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Speaking of the devil. I'm going to put enmity between you, devil, and the woman. And between your offspring, devil, and her offspring. He, who, who's, who's the woman's offspring? Ultimately, it's Jesus. Now, the devil doesn't know this. He thinks it's Seth, or he thinks it's Cain, and then he thinks it's Abel, and he thinks, he thinks it's, it's just the son of the woman. This is, he doesn't realize there's a long time before Jesus comes. But he says, I'm going to put enmity between, between your offspring and the Messiah who is coming. This is speaking of Jesus. And he, speaking of Jesus, will crush your head. In other words, there's going to come a Messiah, an offspring of the woman, who is going to destroy the work of the devil on this planet. You guys understand? That's what, that's what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to destroy the work of the devil on this planet. And you, Mr. Satan, are going to strike his heel. Speaking of the work that the devil would do in putting Jesus to death. You guys with me? Okay. That's first, that's first place. We're not going to hit all these places. We'll be here until tomorrow morning if we did. There's one place. Genesis 5. You guys are going to be, you guys are going to be blown away by Genesis 5. Go, fast forward to Genesis 5 and... Some of you guys have never read Genesis 5 because it's one of those things that you just skip over, okay? It's a list of the genealogies from Adam until Noah. They're like, oh, it's a bunch of names. Anybody got those names memorized? Probably not. If you memorize any scripture, that's probably not what you memorize. But, but if you guys listen to what the names mean, you're going to be freaked out, okay? You guys want to know what the names mean? What does Adam mean? Man. That's right. We got Adam right here. Um, it means man. Seth means, check this out. You can go ahead and put my, my, the chart up here if you got it. Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Kenan means sorrow. Mahalalel means the blessed God. Jared means shall come down. You got it up there? Enoch means teaching. <laughs> Methuselah means his death shall bring. Lemek means the despairing, rest and comfort. You want to know what those first 10 generations of people translates into? Man appointed mortal sorrow, the blessed God shall come down. Teaching his death shall bring the despairing rest or comfort. Okay? That's about Jesus. Okay, Genesis 6. Guys, Genesis 6, what's Genesis 6 through 8 about? The ark. Remember Noah's ark? Okay, what does the ark represent? The ark, the ark is a picture or a type of Jesus that the destruction of 
the wrath of the wrath, the wrath of God is coming on this planet because the the sin of humanity, and everybody is going to experience the wrath of God unless they are in the ark, the ark representing Jesus. Okay, fast forward to Genesis twenty two. We're skipping a bunch of things here, but I want you to catch some of these. Genesis twenty two. You guys remember the story of Genesis 22? God speaks to Abraham and says, take your son, your only son, who you love, and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. You guys remember this? Okay. So Abraham takes his son Isaac on a, how many days to get to, to the place of, of, three days. Three days. Three days. There's a significance to three days, right? Okay. In, in Abraham's mind, his son is dead for three days. Okay. They go to where? Mount Moriah. Where's Mount Moriah? Mount Moriah is where Jerusalem is. It's in Israel. That's right. It's, but it's the mountain where Jerusalem is, guys. Do you understand this? This is not any place. This is the mountain where 2,000 years later, another son was put to death for your sins. And how do they get to Mount Moriah? They ride on a donkey. Do you guys remember the time when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey? Okay. They get there, they leave the servants behind, and they, the father puts on the back of his son Isaac, what? The wood. This is, this hints at the cross. They walk up the mountain, and they carry the fire. They carry the, carry the fire with them for a sacrifice. I know you guys use matches, but in other parts of the world for thousands of years, we had to carry fire from one village to another. So they're carrying the fire. What does the fire represent? It represent, I mean, it's there's going to be a sacrifice here in Abram's mind. There's a sacrifice, and that fire represents the hell that you guys deserve. It really represents the punishment for sin. Okay? And on that mountain, on that mountain, just, just up from Jerusalem, there is a substitution made because Abraham never sacrifices his son. Instead, as he's getting ready to sacrifice his son, God provides a ram to be slaughtered in place of his son. And Abraham has no idea what this is all about, but it is a prophetic picture at that exact place of what would happen 2,000 years later when Jesus dies. Okay, that's Genesis 22. Genesis 24. I'm not going to explain to you Genesis 24. I want you guys to figure this out for your own homework because we don't have time to hit all these. Genesis 24 is the story of Isaac and his bride. Okay, if you guys... You guys if you guys can figure this out, what the, what the picture is of Jesus, then please share it with me or send, send me a text. Okay, Genesis 29. Genesis 29 is the story of Jacob leaving his home and finding a wife. What does that represent? Jacob represents Jesus, and finding a wife represents the bride of Christ, which is the people of God, the church, and, and includes the people of Israel. So, Let's look at, at verse 1 of, of Genesis 29. Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. Verse 2. There he saw a well in the field. Okay. What does a well represent in the Bible? What's that? Living water. That's right. I mean, that's John 4. Also, John 7, 27, where, where, um, where, he's, where Jesus talks about that whoever comes to him... Rivers of living water would flow up through him from inside of him. So this, obviously, this is a real story. Guys, these are real stories that really happened. But they have a, a, they have a, a, a prophetic significance of what Jesus would do. So in this field, what does the field represent? The people of the world, right? So in the middle of the people of the world, there is a well 
where people where wa- water can be drunk. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, holy, in the in the in the masses of people, there is opportunity for people to drink from the Holy Spirit. And there, look there in in verse two. There's flocks of sheep lying near it. What do the sheep represent? It's those, those people that are that are potentially going to come and drink out of that well. You guys with me? Okay. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. Does that sound like anything? You guys remember a lot, where else does it talk about a stone, a, a, a large stone over a mouth? At the grave where Jesus' body was put and where he resurrected from. And I want you guys to see this. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would, so this is just t- explaining what would happen at this well. When all the shepherds would come together and all they got all their flocks, they'd roll the stone away and the sheep would drink. Okay? So you read the rest of the story and you find out that it's at this well, at this place where the stone rolls away, where Jacob meets his bride. Does that sound, does that sound prophetic? I want you guys to see this. Look at verse 9. Well, he was still talking with them. So he's talking with these shepherds. He's talking with these people who are taking care of the sheep. And while he's talking with the people, here comes Rachel, his bride. He doesn't know it yet, but this is his bride. She comes with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Verse 10. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, his brother's, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Guys, this is prophetic. He meets his bride there at the place where the stone is rolled away, and then overcome with emotion, he embraces his bride, his future bride, and kisses her and cries out loud because he's so overcome with emotion. This is all prophetic about Jesus and you guys. And then the story goes on. Because what happens next? He goes, he goes home with her, and he works for the next seven years to win this woman for him. He looks forward to the day when he gets to marry her. And instead, he doesn't get what he pays for, right? Instead, he gets the ugly sister. Right? Sorry. Don't tell her I said that. But it's true. It says she had weak eyes. If you guys translate that right, it means she, her, it was hard to look at her. Okay, but it was the li- they didn't have electricity and the lights were off. And when he woke up in the morning, he freaked out because he didn't get what he paid for. But here's the deal. He has to work another seven years. He has to wait another seven years. He has to pay, pay for his, the bride that he wanted another seven years. Guys, this is prophetic of the fact that Jesus hasn't yet gotten what he paid for with his blood. Instead, he got kind of an ugly stepsister. An ugly, an ugly sister. Okay? He got kind of what he paid for. And you guys can, you guys can work it. You, you, if you want extra credit, you guys figure out whether Leah represents Israel or whether Leah represents the church. Okay? Okay? Yes, I'm serious. Think about it. There's, there's, just, think, just think about it. See if you can just figure it out. Okay. Fast forward to Genesis 37. Genesis 37 to 47 is the story of Joseph. You guys remember the story of Joseph? Joseph is... The, the second youngest of a group of brothers, and he is despised by his brothers. Sound familiar? Joseph is a, is a type or a picture of Jesus. His brothers throw him into a pit to die. Foreigners buy him. He is sold by his own brothers to foreigners. Does that sound like Judas selling Jesus? For 30 pieces of silver, he's taken into 
foreign custody, and he's thrown into prison for something that he did not do. You guys remember this story? Do you guys remember the story, Joseph? If you guys don't know these stories, it's worth reading them. And if you've read them before, it's worth understanding that these stories all point to Jesus. He's thrown into prison for something that he did not do. He's thrown into prison because of somebody else's sin. And from that prison, he rises up to be at the top of the government in the land. This is all prophetic of Jesus. Okay. Next one is Genesis 49.10. We're going to skip that, but I want you guys to read it as part of your homework. Genesis 49.10, is, it's not so much about his death, about his uh, kingship. Genesis 49, 10, and 11. Okay, Exodus 1 and 2. You guys know what, what the book of Exodus is about? The book of Exodus is about the, ex, the exiting of the Jewish people out of Egypt into, their, into the, their, their promised land. Exodus starts with a king who wants to kill the babies. Sound familiar? Does that happen 2,000 or 1,500 years later? At the time of Jesus. King wants to kill the babies. The baby is miraculously saved. And he's saved so that he can save people from their bondage and slavery. You guys hear this? In this case, Moses is a picture of Jesus. Okay? Then Exodus 11 and 12. You guys know what Exodus 11 and 12 is about? It's about the Passover. You guys know what the Passover is, right? The Passover is the night when the wrath of God against sin would result in the death of the firstborn in every home. Every firstborn son in Egypt was going to die except for the houses that were covered in the blood of the lamb. This prophetic of Jesus. And what was the night that the, that, that Passover happened on? What was the night? The 14th day of the first month of Nisan. Okay? Nisan's not a car. It's a month in the Hebrew calendar. Okay, the 14th day of the month of Nisan, what was the night that Jesus died? Same day. Jesus is the Passover lamb. That Passover festival all points to Jesus. Then Exodus 14. What's Exodus 14? Exodus 14 is about the crossing of the Red Sea. What's this about? This is about the deliverance from death through water, which represents baptism, exactly. Baptism. Exodus 17 and, and Numbers 20, verse 8. Now, you guys got to put these, these, these two sections together to figure it out. You guys remember the time? In Exodus 17, God commands, the people are whining because they don't have something to drink. The people are always whining about something. But here they're whining about not having something to drink. And God commands Moses to do what? To provide drink for them. To hit the rock. Okay? Hit the rock and what would come out? Water. water. Well, we already talked about What does water represent in the Bible? Living water, which it represents. John seven twenty seven and John 4 is about, about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit welling up, giving life to people. So Moses is told to hit the rock and living water would come. What does the rock represent? Who's the rock? Jesus. Okay, what does this prophetically represent? It, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit only available after his being 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 hit being killed do you guys understand this in fact this jesus says this if you guys are writing your side notes john 7 um, john seven thirty seven, where it says the holy spirit wasn't given because jesus hadn't yet been glorified he couldn't be glorified until he was put to death and, and resurrected okay you guys understand that 
So the water is only poured out of the rock after, after the rock is hit. This really happened. In fact, you guys can, if you, if you Google it, you can find the, the, a picture of what was probably the rock. Okay? And it's not on the Sinai Peninsula like it was thought for so long. It's on the other side of the, the east leg of the Red Sea in, uh, in Arabia, just like Galatians says. Okay? The place is important. Uh, we could talk about that all night. Okay. So the rock is hit. Water comes out. And then a while later, they're whining again. And this time, God tells Moses to do what? This is in Numbers 20, verse 8. He doesn't tell Moses to hit the rock. What does he tell him to do? Speak to the rock. He, he tells Moses to speak to the rock. And Moses loses his temper and does what he did the last time and whacks the rock. And God responds and the water comes out. But Moses is uh, disciplined. He's punished because he disobeyed. God says, you treated me as... as you treated me in an unholy way. How is that? Well, this is representative. This is prophetic. If, Jesus, if water comes out of the rock with the rock being hit the first time, do you need to hit the rock again? No. No way. In fact, Hebrews 6 talks about this, about trampling the Son of God all over again. No. You speak to the rock. You want the Holy Spirit in your life? You don't got to hit the rock again. You just got to speak to the rock. Do you guys understand this? And what's the result of Moses' sin? He doesn't get to go in the promised land. He gets to see it from a distance, but he does not get to go into the promised land. What's the prophetic significance of that? Person that, that beats Jesus. Jesus already been beaten. You don't get to nail Jesus to the cross again. Person that nails Jesus to the cross again is, is, doesn't have to enter the promised land. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? You got it? Okay, thank you, Bethany. Okay. Let's move on. Guys, I hope you guys are excited about these, all these prophetic uh, examples of Jesus. Okay, Exodus 25 to 28 is all about the tabernacle. The tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. You guys remember this box that, that contained the, the Ten Commandments, contained some things where the, where the presence of God was. It, was. it was so electrified you couldn't touch it. The Ark of the Covenant, the offerings, the light, the, the, the candlelight, the oil, the colors, all these things point to Jesus. Okay, we can talk about all that, that all night. Okay, Numbers 2. Let's go to Numbers 2. Numbers 2 is fascinating. Numbers 2, you guys, have, this is one of those things you're like, Numbers 2? Who reads Numbers 2? Okay, you guys are real excited about what you find here, okay? Numbers 2, starting verse 1. The Lord said to, you can, you can put it up there, Skylar, if you want. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting some distance from it. So right in the middle of the camp, they got the tent of meeting, this tabernacle. And they've got, there's 12 tribes, 12 tribes, and you got three tribes on the east, three tribes on the west, three tribes in the north, three tribes in the south, okay? Okay, do all the tribes have the same number of people? No, they don't. And also, understand this. Can you go ahead and put that, that um, picture up there? Now you, can, you can look at the numbers of the people in all these tribes. Okay, these three, these three tribes have a lot more people than, than, than each of these three tribes, Okay. And they don't, they, don't, they don't camp in the corners. This is how they camp. In fact, th throw the next picture up there. This is what it looked like. Okay? So if you looked at it from above, this is what it looked like. Now, this isn't quite accurate because it looks a little more, it, it looks symmetrical. But the east side was way longer than the other three sides. And if you, it, it, 
if you look from above at this camp, it was in the shape of a cross. If you look from the east. Now, I know all you guys think maps is, you know, we look from the south, right, on our maps? Well, so I thought, was there ever a time when somebody was in a helicopter looking at this? And there was, not in a helicopter. But, mo but, but um, when, when Balaam was hired by Balak to curse the Israelites, they were in the valley right down next to the Jordan River, just about to head up into Jerusalem. They're 3,000 feet. Well, they're way 3,000 feet below sea level. But Mount Nebo, where Balaam curses, is where he was going to curse the Israelites from, is way up above. And he looks down into the Jordan Valley and sees something that he doesn't understand what it is, but it's the Israelite community down there in the shape of a cross. And if you, if you look straight across there, straight up the other side, straight west, goes up four, four and a half thousand feet, what's right there at the end of the cross? The place where Jesus died. Is that cool or what? Okay, let's keep going. That's numbers 21. Oh, no, that's numbers two. Okay, now then numbers 21. Okay, numbers 21 is the story of the bronze serpent. Okay. Do you guys know the story of the bronze serpent? I'll just tell you. The, the, is, there's, there's snakes. The snakes are biting the people. This represents sin, destroying people. This is a real story, but it has prophetic significance. The, people are dying because of the snake bites, uh, signifying people dying because of their sin. God tells Moses, take a serpent, put it on a pole, and if anybody looks at that, they will not die from the snake bite. Look at, have you guys seen this? Go to the next slide. Have you guys seen this, this thing? Snake on a pole? You guys know where that comes from? It comes from Numbers 21. Okay? It's, it's become the, the, the medical symbol. Snake on a pole. Why? Because God saved the people if they would just look at that snake on a pole. Now, Jesus explains, he explains this actually in John 3. He said, just like the people, if they looked at the snake on the pole, they were saved. So if the people look to the Son of Man when he's lifted up, they'll be saved also. Do you guys understand? Okay. How is it that Jesus, that a snake is a symbol for Jesus? That doesn't make sense, does it? Well, it's because Jesus, the snake symbolizes sin. And 1 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus became sin for us. You guys understand? Okay. You guys ready? For, you guys okay for a little more? Okay. Okay. We're going to skip the next one also. Numbers 24, 17 through 19. You guys study that. See if you see what it says about Jesus. Joshua 1. You guys remember we talked about Joshua 1 several, a couple months back. Joshua. How do you say Joshua in Greek? No, that's, that's Hebrew. How do you say Yeshua in, in Greek? Jesus, exactly. So Joshua, the book of Joshua in Greek is Jesus. In fact, if you read the translations of the Septuagint, it talks about Jesus, not Joshua. It's the same name, just in two different languages. Joshua is the son of Nun, which means expansion. Jesus, the son of expansion, who takes over after the Mosaic law is dead, after Moses has died, to go into the promised land to take the kingdom that was rightfully God's in the first place. Okay, is that prophetic or what? Joshua 2, the story of Rahab. You remember the story of Rahab? What saves Rahab's life? She has faith, and to show her faith, she puts, she puts a red cord out the window signifying the blood of Jesus. Okay, that's Joshua 2.21. Joshua 3, the Israelites come across the Jordan River. 
signify? What does the Jordan River signify in the Bible? Death. They step out of their old life. They walk into their new life. Okay? Judges 14. Okay, guys, we're going to skip that too. This is about Samson and a lion and some bees and some honey. And it is fascinating, but it'd take me about 30 minutes to go through it. So you guys figured out. Joshua, Judges 14, okay? Whoever gets that figured out and explained to me wins a uh, free coffee. Okay. I mean, it's fascinating. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. So you guys see if you can figure that out in Judges 14, okay? Ruth, the whole book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is about a foreign woman representing the, the bride, the foreign bride of Christ, which is us, the church, that is redeemed by a rich man who marries her. You guys know the book of Ruth? It's a fascinating love story, but there's, there's, it, it's prophetic of Jesus. Okay, 1 Samuel. You guys know the book of 1 Samuel? Yeah. It's about a, a king that is raised up because of his unfaithfulness to God. Then there's a no-name kid who's born in Bethlehem. His name is David. And he's, he's a prophetic picture of Jesus who God used to destroy God's enemies. David grows up and he's rejected by his people and becomes king. But before he becomes king, he spends time in the cave of Adullam. Sound familiar? Right? Do you guys understand? The prophetic, some of you guys are like, what's the, the, the significance is Jesus, Jesus in, in the tomb before he becomes king. Okay. 2 Samuel 7. Let's skip that. Esther. You guys, read the book of Esther and see, and see how, how Esther is a prophetic picture of Jesus, how she saves the people by giving up her own life. Okay. Okay, Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 22, Psalm 110. Guys, these are all good things. Okay. Isaiah 53. Read Isaiah 53. 700 years before Jesus is put to death, Isaiah describes in detail how Jesus put to death. Okay? Read it. Isaiah 53. Okay. Here's where we're going to go. Okay, let me mention a couple more, and then we can come back and do Daniel, because I think you guys would be real excited about Daniel. Okay, Jonah 2. Remember the book of Jonah? Jonah, the people of Nineveh are saved because Jonah is, because he basically he dies because a, a fish swallows him. He is in the, in, the, in the stomach of this fish, and God does it. Through a miraculous resurrection, God saves the people of Nineveh. What's that? For three days, three days, um, which is prophetic of Jesus. Okay. Jonah 2, Zechariah 3, 8. We're not going there, but guys, write it down. It's worth checking out. See so if you can, again, guys, this is fun stuff. Yeah. Look at Zechariah 3, 8 to see if you can figure out what that's all about. Because it points right to Jesus. In fact, the priest who, who it's talking about there, his name is Jesus. It's Joshua in the Old Testament. But that's because it's in Hebrew. But if you read it. In the direct translation from the Greek, it's Jesus. Okay. Zechariah 12.10 and Zechariah 13.1. Okay, I'm not going to go through those because we're out of time. But I guess spend, spend the next week going through these. Okay, we're going to look at one, one more um, part that's going to blow your minds, okay? You don't like this. Okay, Daniel 7.13. Let's go there. Daniel 7.13 tells of a time when a son of man is worshipped. Daniel 7.13, Daniel's seeing what is prophetically into our future. 
Daniel 7.13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and he was led into his presence. And this man was given authority, great authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Who's he talking about? Jesus. Talking about Jesus. Now, right, right here in, in, in chapter 7, it doesn't tell you how he gets the dominion. But if you flip over to chapter 9, you guys are going to like this. Okay, flip over to chapter 9. And we're going to fly through this in a few minutes, but you guys are going to be excited, even though you're not going get to all, get all of it. Okay. Do you guys remember that that the, the Jewish people were taken out of their land. King Nebuchadnezzar, you guys who watch Veggie Tales remember King Nebi? Yeah. Okay. Came and, came and attacked Jerusalem in 605 BC. Then, then again, seven, eight years later, in 597 BC. And then again, destroyed the city completely and, and burned the temple in 586 BC. Three times. The prophet Jeremiah had been told that 70 years the Jews would be taken out of the land. Okay? As 70 years are drawn to a close in 539 B.C., Daniel is in captivity in Babylon. He's a government official. A lot has happened. And he's praying. He's saying, God, 70 years is almost up. What's going to happen? Okay? You guys don't understand the context. You guys with me? Yeah. Uh, 70, 70 years, he's saying. 70 years is almost up. You're going to let us go back to the, our land? In verse 24, it's explaining what's actually going to happen. Those 70 years are going to be multiplied by 7, and they're not going to be consecutive. Okay? It's kind of like when you thought your timeout was up, and now you got more time. Okay? Verse 24, this is what Daniel is told. 77, so instead of, instead of 70 years, now it's going to be 70 sets of 7 years, are decreed for your people. Who's, who's Daniel's people? The Jews. The Jews. This is what's going to happen over these. How, how long is 70 times 7? 4 to 90. This is how it's going to work out. You guys are going to check it out. These are dec- decreed for your pe- for the Jewish people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So we could go through all these things to talk about what they all mean. But all these things are going to happen. And this is how it happens. You guys want to know what the timeline is? Okay. So verse 25, no one understand this. From the, the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one. How do you say anointed one in, in Hebrew? Messiah. How do you say it in Greek? Christ. Okay. It's talking about Messiah, talking about Christ. From the time, guys, guys understand this. From the time that the decree is issued... To restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah comes, there's going to be a certain amount of time. Do you guys know how much time that is? Okay, we're going to read it. You guys, do you guys want to know? Okay, yeah, we got a, a few minutes left here, so hang, hang in there with me. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Okay? So we're gonna, I'm going to write this out for you. Give me seven sevens. Seven sevens. Seven times seven and sixty-two times seven. Okay. Okay. This comes out of four hundred four hundred eighty-three years. 
Oops. 483 years. Okay? There's going to be 483 years from when to when. <laughs> Who can answer this question? Right? It's right in the Bible. We just read it. Not until sin is atoned for. That's that's the last seven. That's the last seven-year period. Okay. Until, from the time that the command is given until. Look at it. Look at it. We just read it, guys. Come on. Verse twenty-five. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Jesus comes, there's going to be four hundred eighty-three years. And it, t- it talks about it. In it will be rebuilt. The city, the city of Jerusalem will be built with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. This is the book of Nehemiah. If you guys want to know what that was like, read the book of Nehemiah. After the 62 sevens, so after this set of 62 sevens, what's going to happen? Look, look, you, gotta, you, gotta, you guys got to study. Look. He's going to, this Messiah will be put to death. So when this is done, Jesus is going to die. Now, this didn't, this didn't fit the people's theology at the time, so they didn't know what this, was, what this was all about. But now, looking back, we know. If you want to know who the Messiah was, well, could, you think you could count 483 years from the time that the decree was made to, to rebuild Jerusalem? Okay, when was the decree made to rebuild, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem? Not 684. Not 684. Jerusalem was destroyed. Completely in 586 B.C. There were no Jews left in the land. They were all taken out of Babylon. Babylon was defeated by, those of you that have been in Bible Q&A, we've been talking about this recently. Babylon was defeated by Cyrus. Cyrus made a decree to do what? To rebuild the temple. Guys, don't get confused. It's not, it's not, this measurement is not from the Cyrus decree to rebuild the temple. The decree to rebuild the temple was made in 538 B.C. The decree to restore the walls happens in Nehemiah chapter 2. You guys can write it down in your notes and look at it later. In the month of Nisan, which is March. You guys want to know? March 445 B.C. Okay. Now here, if you guys count this up, you're going to be confused. And here's why. Now, there was another decree. Actually, if you look at Ezra 7, there's, there's something that happens in 557 B.C., okay? But it, it's, not, it's, not, it, it's not quite the same decree. Okay, so if you count 483 years from 557, you get just about where, G, where Jesus is put to death, but not exactly. And this wasn't really the strong decree. 445 B.C., what happens in 445 B.C.? King Artaxerxes, Longimanus, he's called, he's, he's called Longiminus or something because he's got one arm that's longer than another one. Okay? It's just something to remember. So if you're trying to remember, there's a few Artaxerxes, he's the one with the long arm. And he, may, he makes a decree through Nehemiah to restore the wall in Jerusalem in March 445 B.C. Okay. Here's, here's what's going to blow your minds. This is what you got you to think about. If we take 483 years and we multiply by 365 days, we come out with a date that isn't right. However, up until about 700 BC, all the calendars had how many days? 
360, exactly. So if you multiply 43 times 360, you come out with 173,880 days. So here's what you guys can do for your homework. You can count from March 445, 173,880 days, and find out what date you end up with. Okay? What I've been told, and I haven't been able to find the, act, the, the exact, but I've been told this, it was March 15, 445 BC. So if you want to be exact, count from that day. And you come out with the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's just coincidence, isn't it? Okay. Now, as I know what a lot of you are thinking, now, why is it 360 days? Well, the, the, all the old calendars were based on 360 days. And, and the, we're not sure about how that all works. But if you use that 360-day calendar, it comes out to 32 AD when Jesus comes into Jerusalem five days before he's put to death. Okay? Are you guys interested in this? Okay, so in answer to the question, where in the Old Testament does it talk about Jesus' death? It's all over the place. I gave you some of these. There's more. You get bonus points if you can find more and share them with me, especially if, I'm, if I haven't found them myself before, okay? Guys, let's stand up and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we don't want to just hear about things that happen in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. We want an experience of your death in our lives, that we'd all look to you as the substitutionary payment for our sin. We know that it was us who deserved to be on that cross. It was us who deserved to pay. And we just say thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for loving us, for including us in your family, in your kingdom, and for making us to be a kingdom of priests whose job it is to reconcile people to you. And so, Lord, we're just asking for your grace and every person here. So there's people here tonight who don't, don't, this is the first time they're hearing about any of this. Lord, would you use the things that we talked about in here, and even, even the conversations that happen after this, to draw their hearts to you? And would you keep on building your kingdom through the people at the cornerstone. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.